This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Paul Hawken. Paul Hawken is an environmentalist, entrepreneur, journalist, and author. Starting at age 20, he dedicated his life to sustainability and changing the relationship between business and the environment. His practice has included starting and running ecological businesses, writing and teaching about the impact of commerce on living systems, and consulting with governments and corporations on economic development, industrial ecology, and environmental policy. He has also written the New York Times best-selling book, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. And in this conversation on Insights at the Edge, we'll be talking about Project Drawdown and how to reverse global warming. I also want to let our listeners know that we're broadcasting this conversation with Paul Hawken in honor of a new 10-day online event series called Waking Up in the World that Sounds True is hosting beginning on September 24th. This series hosts 30 presenters who are looking at the intersection of the spiritual journey with social change in the world. The series includes such speakers as Parker Palmer, David Suzuki, Glennon Doyle, Eve Ensler, Joanna Macy, Tara Brock, Valerie Carr, Matthew Fox, Jack Cornfield. It's really an incredible list of presenters. Van Jones, Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Again, it begins on September 24th. There are three broadcasts a day, 10 a.m., 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And you're all invited to join us for Waking Up in the World. You can go to SoundsTrue.com for more information, again beginning on September 24th. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Paul and I spoke about how climate change isn't happening to us, but instead is happening for us and how it's actually a privilege to be alive at this time in human history while there is an alarm system going off that is begging us to transform. We also talked about how there is an underlying system that needs transformation. And Paul talked about how we can't just focus on one issue when it comes to reversing global warming such as the burning of fossil fuels. But instead, we need to look at transforming a system that honors life, creates jobs, and addresses human needs. Finally, Paul and I talked about the power of regeneration, how he believes it's not game over, but game on, and how life regenerates life. 
Here's my incredibly inspiring conversation with someone I deeply respect, Paul Hawken. Sounds True is producing a new online event series called Waking Up in the World, and one of the topics we're looking at is the intersection between the personal spiritual journey and social change, changes that are being asked for in our world at large. And I wanted to begin, Paul, by understanding how you understand that intersection in a very personal way for you. How does it connect for you, whatever you would describe as your spiritual journey as a person and being an activist in the way that you are in the world? How do you understand that intersection, if you have an appreciation of it in some sense? Yeah, I think you know, as a child, um, it was so interesting when I was on the book tour uh, this last year for Drawdown, somebody asked me a question that I hadn't heard before. And forgive me, but I forget the question. But I, I do remember the answer. And um, and the answer was that when I was a child, it wasn't really safe in my house as a child. It, it, it didn't feel safe at all. And so I went outside and spent as much time as possible outside uh, where I felt safe and continue to this day to feel that way. And even in California growing up, which is where I grew up, I mean, with fires and floods and things like that, I always felt safe, you know. Um, and but being outside, what I noticed was that I didn't know anything. That is to say, I had didn't know how it was working, what the names were, you know, what was crawling underneath this rock, you know, what the sounds were that I was hearing in the forest, or and I developed this intense curiosity about the living world, um, and that to me is what led to a sense of mm, awe. You know, uh, certainly appreciation, wonder, astonishment. Um, and I think it also led to a sense of the uh, inextricability of life. That is to say, it, it, it's, not, it's inseparable from itself and all other things. And I don't just mean the things that, you know, walk and crawl and fly, you know, and swim. I, I mean... The atmosphere, the climate, you know, water, rivers, every single aspect of life, you know, is intimately interconnected with itself and us. And so that that connection between the the living world and the the humanness of, of each of us, you know, we're human beings, you know, but inseparable from that. Um, led to ways of appreciating it that were not just purely scientific, not mechanistic, you know, not Cartesian, not just analytic, but actually holistic. And to me, that pathway leads right to reverence, you know, and uh, reverence leads to spiritual traditions that um, are non-dual. In, in, in essence, you know, um, that are not about dual thinking. And uh, so that was kind of the pathway uh, from my childhood to, um, <clears throat> I, 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 want, I don't want to say a spiritual understanding. I don't even know what spiritual means, um, really, you know. Um, but, but an understanding that was not um, uh, 
did not take the the intermediate world, as it's called in Buddhism, or the invisible world, or that which we cannot see and measure and analyze, and the physical material world, um, and brought them together in a way that um, uh, is real to me to this day. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about that awe and reverence, I think that's something that a lot of our listeners feel for the natural world. And a response that I think a lot of our listeners are having right now is one of feeling devastated, distraught, sad, brokenhearted, some version of that when they observe what's happening to the natural environment right now. And I wonder if you can speak directly to them and how you work with that emotion yourself, if you do. Well, for sure. I mean, no one likes to see suffering. And... uh on a human level, but when you see it on a vast level, which is what we see today, uh, ecosystems, forests, lands, oceans, you know, biodiversity, species, um, and humans, beings, because we're animals too, um, it's, it's too much, to, it's almost too much to take. And, um, and the, the rate of loss is extraordinary, uh, sometimes known as a sixth extinction. Um, and I, if, if it's the grief of that is actually important, I think it's really important to feel the grief, um, because otherwise you, 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 and I'm not saying this is true for your listeners, but I think people will just get numb, you know, they just, and because they can't handle the constancy of the news or the information or the reports or even the first person experiences of it you know seeing it um and i think if 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 one doesn't go through a passage of grief um then it is a disabling experience you know very disabling i think in whatever form that may take you know i think it can be a very empowering one once it is experienced, you know. And the sense of loss, whether it's tears or anger, it can be anger, it can be both, it can be um, horror, it can be sorrow. Um, it, it takes all those forms, you know, all the all those emotions come up. But but I, I think uh, it's kind of like, for me, it's like then you know why you're here. Why are you here? You know, I mean, obviously it's not to be, you know, the destroyer, um, but to be the one who addresses suffering on all levels, you know. I mean, that's the bodhisattva vow, but, but I mean, sometimes it's often seen as just about human suffering. And, um, but to me, you know, it's like we chose to be here. I mean, here, now, here we are. Why? Why are we here now? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a, it's it's perversely a privilege to be here, at this moment, at this time, with that knowledge, and that happening, um, because it makes it very clear as to what our, what our job is, you know, what our roles are, um, where our heart belongs. Um, so there's a great paradox in it all. 
Now, you say it's perversely a privilege. I can imagine, God, you know, it feels like a burden. Tell me how it's a privilege. Well, it's a burden uh, if you separate it from yourself, if you think it's other, if you think, you know, if you um, <clears throat> go around and basically sort of disintegrate yourself from the world and wish it was other than it is. And the privilege of being alive is um, to be present. Pres that's the privilege of being alive. And the, the privilege of being alive is not thinking about the past or projecting it onto the future. And that's the privilege of getting lost, and, which is not the privilege, but that's getting lost and so forth. So being that acutely aware of what's happening so forth, you know, is is a refining transformational experience. And um, so then what do you do? What do you say? Who are you? How do you act? How do you look at others? You know, how do you see, you know? And um, is it blame and demonization, which is another way of creating otherness, or is it compassion? Is it understanding? I mean, it just opens up all the transformational pathways that are available to us and then some uh, as to our presence and what it means to be a human being. And um, so if if it's just despair, burden, hopelessness, you know, depression, blame, um, really you're here, you're not here for a long time, is that how you want to live your life? You know, I mean, that's your choice. That's available to you. That's possible. But there's another possibility, which is to take it all in, you know. Um, <clears throat> and then as a transformational experience. I mean, there's a wonderful story. I forget the name of the tribe about Northwest Native Americans. Um, and it's in the sixth volume uh, of uh, Alfred Kroeber, the, the great uh, anthropologist. He talks about... Um, in this particular tribe, um, the the women were the shamans, and um, and a woman became a shaman if she had a true dream, and uh, and then if she thought she had a true dream, she would go to the elders and 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 tell these women the dream she had, and they would decide whether this woman had a true dream or just a dream, you know. And if she did, then she was initiated, and she was initiated by. Um, going to a sweat uh, hut for 10 days uh, and on water only. Um, and then 10 days of eating acorn gruel uh, and then 10 days of dancing inside the sweat hut, you know, uh, with water only and then 10 days acorn gruel. I mean, it sounds extraordinary. And until such time she could disgorge her uh, illness, her dis-ease, her, her shadow. She could literally disgorge it and hold it and show it and see it. And then she was asked to re-engorge it, put it back in. Because once she had seen it inside herself and she was back in it, was back inside, she could see it everywhere and in all things. And she became the shaman, the healer, um, because she integrated that within herself. And so when we see that outside, what are we seeing? I mean, when we understand that it's us and not them, then we become very powerful in our capacity to be 
that person who offers um, salve and succor and help and assistance and aid and generosity and healing to the world. But until that happens, you know, then as I said, the world is other. And it, we live in the wor world right now where otherness dominates, you know. We have a president who makes everything other. We have the Me Too movement was about women saying, no mas, you know, no mas, no longer, we are not other, you know. And I mean, you see Islamophobia, you see the, the, the use of uh, immigration as a, 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 as a political uh, device to divide people and to create fear. All this is about creating, you know, this idea that something's other. But we, as a movement, cannot do the same. Otherwise, it's the same mentality that's caused the problem is trying to cure it. And when we talk about fighting climate change, combating, you know, the war on carbon, all these terms, you know, are basically male sports and war metaphors, you know, that describe seeing the world as separate from ourselves. And that is not the mind that heals. The mind that heals is the mind that sees itself in everything. Beautiful, Paul. Now, I met you, I just want to come forward with this, 25 years ago at a mm. social venture network conference. I don't even know if you'll remember that. But I've been following you for all these years. Not, you know, not like stalking you, Paul, don't worry. But I've just <laughs> been uh, following your activities in the world. And what's really impressed me is how you've had some type of ability to both tune into the zeitgeist and get underneath what's happening and understand the roots of things, whether it's our economic system or now global warming and what can be done and needs to be done in response. And I want to get into Project Drawdown and your work with that. But before we do, I just want to understand a little bit about how you tick, if you will, how it works for you that you drop underneath big issues to see a type of holistic solution? I think it goes back to what I was saying at the outset about spending a, a lot of time outside and not knowing. Yeah. I, you know. And um, to this day, uh, for me, when I look at any situation, whether it be economics or whether it be civil society or climate or the environment, uh, not the environment as a whole, but how we're treating the environment, you know, as a society. I mean, actually, I feel like I'm very slow in the same way that as a child, I was outside and going, I don't know what's going on here, but it's interesting. And I can master everything in the house in a day, you know, switches and bathrooms and, you know, where the food is in the kitchen. That's a piece of cake, but boy, outside, it's so complex, you know. And for me, I think that curiosity then when it goes to, say, within the zeitgeist, but a problem, an issue, a, you, know, a, you know, I wrote a book called The Next Economy, right? You know what I mean? It's like, well, okay, what's going on in the economy? You know? and, and, and Blasted Unrest is about civil society, you know what I mean? Drawdowns about climate. But to me, it's like, it takes me a long time to actually figure out, okay, what's going on here? How is it being perceived? And is it, is the perception or the communication of it actually helpful 
to the to the situation at hand, you know, and that, that's always up for me, you know, like, huh, and reading and thinking and reading and thinking and reading and thinking. I'm really more like a monk, you know, and in that sense, and um, and then at some point, tentatively, I go, I think this is sounds, you know, sort of, I think this is what's happening, or I think this is a better way to look at it for me in other words a way that is more integrated and is a helpful way in the sense of i know how to act or it points it's a, like a pointing out instruction that's innate in the situation and um and so then it's a question of how do i express that and the thing is uh, as a child i think I, I think i'm sort of low spectrum autistic in this <laughs> in the sense that I see ideas in, in, uh, uh, as, as pictures. I see words as pictures. So even when I'm, I'm giving a talk, actually literally I'm seeing pictures and making words while I'm on stage, you know. And so when I'm writing a book, it's like, okay, I'll, I'm writing, and then I actually step back and say, okay, you know, who's reading this? And then for that matter, who's writing it? And, 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 and always go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, so that when I'm writing it, I'm not, there's a friend of mine, uh, this is so digressive, but we were talking about uh, a book and um, fairly well known and he's a writer and I'm a writer and I say, and he said, did you read this book? And he's Texan. I said, you know, and I said, yeah, I said, Mike, did you read it? He said, yeah, Paul. I read that book. <laughs> he said there's a stop sign at the end of every sentence. And the, the point being is that those stop signs are the words or the borrowed language or the little Phillips or cutesies or things that make the writer, without the writer maybe noticing it, but it's the ego. In other words, it's the ego saying, look at, you know, I know this, that, so forth. And when I write, I think what I'm trying to do is is do exactly what you said, get under the skin, get inside see it in such a way and write in a way that is not trying to tell somebody what is true or what they should know, but to give them the information uh, with, 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 with which they can then create their own picture of the world, you know, as opposed to, you know, this picture is right or this is what I know or this is true. And, you know, so it's not didactic. And I don't, I don't, I kind of, pull back and and repelled by the didacticism in writing or speech. Um, so that's my style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's introduce our listeners, if they're not familiar, to Project Drawdown, what it is and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, Project Drawdown is a, a nonprofit <clears throat> uh, in Sausalito, California, that map measures and models uh, the most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And the reason we do it is because it had never been done before. Um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has um, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. 
And, um, and in those 30 years, it had never done that, nor had any other institution, whether it be academic or nonprofit or for-profit. Um, and I had spent 13 years up until the formation of Project Drawdown sort of going around asking other institutions to do it. In essence, I wanted to know where do we stand? I mean, I, 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 I was reading the assessments, the IPCC assessments, you know, the first, second, third, fourth, and now fifth, but I mean, and uh, I think, and, you know, it's like, you know, Houston, we have a problem. I mean, it's a, a the most gnarly problem civilization has ever faced and may ever. And, but from my point of view, I wanted to know, okay, got it what can we do? And as much as people were proffering different solutions, it, it was very limited to me in terms of the scope and both in breadth and, and, and timing. You know, I, I didn't see a way through from what anybody was saying. And so um, it was really in 19, no, 19, no, I guess that, but 20, um, actually just go to 2013 and and bill mckibben wrote a piece uh in rolling stone called global warming's terrifying new math and um it was based on mark campanelli's work in london who was a financial analyst and went to the nonprofit side and he um analyzed the balance sheets of every coal gas and oil company that he could get his hands on some of them were private sovereign companies and he couldn't but but he was looking at the assets, and the assets are the reserves, you know, um, which is how much coal in the ground, how much oil in the ground, how much proven reserves of gas in the ground. And he came up with the term unburnable carbon, saying, well, if we burned all of these so-called assets, we would be Venus, essentially. And so, therefore, they're not assets. How can you call this an asset if it's unburnable? So what Bill did in his piece in Rolling Stone um, is uh, turn um, Marx's data into poetry, as Marx said, and burned it. It's a special type of poetry because it just scared the pee out of people. And I had friends coming to me uh, after the article was published saying literally uh, it was game over. And these are people who are activists, people who have been very effective um, on the issue of climate and the environment and saying, I'm giving up. Uh, and it occurred to me then that, um, wow, is that true? I mean, you know, let's say, let's give them, you know, um, there's space on that one, you know. I mean, like, is that true? And I just, I didn't think it was uh, or is. And so I decided to start Project Radon and, and do what I had been asking others to do for 13 years, which is to map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. But I also, I also wanted to name the goal. In other words, I want, can we just name the goal? Because what I noticed um, during all that time was that people were using, as I mentioned previously, uh, war and sports metaphors to talk about the problem. You know, we should fight it, combat it. There's a climate crusade, uh, an unfortunate term if ever there was one. Um, and uh, that we should have, you know, a war on carbon, the carbon war room. Uh, Carbon being the basis of all life, of course, and and I, I felt like 
and everybody's talking about mitigation. You know, we should mitigate. You know, and and I thought, what does what does mitigation even mean? You know, it means reducing the pain of something or the seriousness of something. And and <clears throat> I just felt these were either inappropriate or wimpy words like mitigate. Um, and I also felt that these were goals that were vacuous, frankly. Uh, for example, the Paris Agreement, 2C in 2050, um, mitigating climate change. You know, These were the goals that were being bandied about. And I thought, like, who wakes up in the morning and says, oh, my gosh, you know, 2C, 2050, I'm on it. You know, what a great day. Nobody, you know, it's 32 years from now. And the same thing with mitigation. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, I have a great day mitigating. You know, I mean, so it seems to me the communication was inappropriate. And furthermore, the goals that were being named and so forth were um, guaranteed to basically disengage people, you know, which is like, go for it. But I have a job to do. I have a family to raise. I have a farm to, you know, to cultivate. I mean, it, 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 it just didn't connect with people. So I wanted to name the goal, which is drawdown, which means to reverse global warming, which means that first time uh, on a year-to-year basis where greenhouse gases go down, name it, you know, and then to basically work with uh, 200 plus uh, people around the world, scientists and uh, researchers, postdocs, students, politicians, writers, activists, uh, religious leaders, etc. And but to actually see if it was achievable within 30 years. Notes, can we actually reach that point? Given what we know, what we know how to do, in other words, what's already in place and solutions that are already scaling. In other words, not silver bullets, not you know, things that you know could be, should be, ought to be. Um, but given what we know, what we are doing, is it possible? And that's what Drawdown essentially is. And that's how it came about. Now, you mentioned that when you read the article by Bill McKibben and it was Game Over, I heard this in one of your talks in preparing for this conversation, that your conclusion was, no, not Game Over, but Game On. (laughs) I thought that's so clever and rememberable. Paul, game on. I love that. Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, uh, here's the story. I have a, a Brazil team uh, of drawdown, you know, and w- w- one of the people on the team, I, I mean, we don't call it a team, but it's a group we work closely together, is Giselle Bunchen, the model. And she and eight other people from Brazil and I were meeting together in Los Angeles and because her husband's mother uh, was not was was had a serious health problem, Tom Brady came with her. Okay, so Tom Brady was in the room, and as it turns out, he, he was just sitting to my left, and we were talking about the science, you know, about the dire reports that you know are increasing. And one of the people from uh, Anna um, from Brazil said, you know, is it is it game over, you know? I mean, you know, just between you and me, you know, kind of thing. And I started to talk, talk about it. And then I said, gosh, I'm, I'm sitting next to Tom Brady. And that was after the Super Bowl. <laughs> Not the one last year, but the one before, and in which, you know, they went into the locker room at halftime behind 21 to 3 and, and then got 
behind 28 to 3 and then uh, created the greatest comeback in NFL history and won 31 to 28. I turned to him and said, Tom, I just want to ask you a question. When you went into the locker room at halftime, did you think it was game over? Because people were walking out of the stands and turning their TVs off. And he, he there was an innocence to his response. Uh, and he said, he looked at like, well, we never think that way, ever. The game's never over. And... Um, until it's you know over by by time, but not, not while we're playing. And I said, well, what happened in the locker room? He said, well, before a game, we always study the team's strength. You know, their how strong they are on offense and defense. And then uh, I said, well, what did you do this time? He said, well, at halftime, we knew their weaknesses, so we studied their weakness. <laughs> and. Um, but there was what I'm saying is that there was an innocence mm-hmm. to it as opposed to defiance or machismo or something like that, you know, or hell no, whatever. It was just like an innocence. And I feel the same thing holds true for all of us, which is that, you know, sometimes when we get to that point in our life where we surrender, we give up, it's game over, we surrender, and everything opens up. And so I felt that Bill's article was really important because it, it, it was that point where people open up and as opposed to shut down, really. Because when you say it's game over, then you, you're saying, I give up, I resign. And that's actually a, a kind of a, a, a moment. In, we've all had it in some way or another, you know, where we just like, oh, you know, can't can't do it anymore something what it is and and then something changes and so i just felt that there's a receptivity in people and that's what we've seen with drawdown because basically what we all experience into this moment really is the uh articulate and eloquent capacity of climate science to define and repeat the problem in more and more interesting ways and as if repeating the problem constantly and over and over would solve the problem, and it doesn't. And what Drawdown does is fully acknowledge, honor, revere the science and the problem itself and how it's described, and know this, that every problem is a solution in disguise. That's what a problem is, or otherwise it wouldn't be a problem. Okay. And, and so therefore, this is the most gnarly problem Ever, so therefore, it is just laden with extraordinary solutions that are pathways to transformation. That's how we see it. So, drawdown is all about possibility, honoring the probability, the problem, the science. But it's all about possibility, and human beings move towards possibility. So, for that person who says, you know, I get it, I want to feel hopeful. Show me the pathway, Paul. What did this team of researchers, scientists, scholars, volunteers, spiritual leaders, what did they map out as a pathway to reversing global warming? Yeah, it's slightly different. And what we did is we went out into the world to see what the world does know and is doing. It's different than us saying this is the pathway. The drawdown is a mirror to the world to see itself in a way it's never seen itself before. 
So remember I said the solutions we modeled are all in place, well understood, peer-reviewed science in terms of their impact, peer-reviewed or you know internationally uh, understood in terms of economic impact by institutions like the IEA or World Bank, et cetera. And so none of the data in Dryland is our data. It's data from the most respected people, scientists, and institutions in the world about what is. Drawdown is a reality project. It's not a project to be hopeful. It's not one to, you know, people say it's very inspirational, it's very optimistic, you know, very hopeful. Great. But it was a reality project. It was about what do we know, what are we doing, and if it scales rigorously but within reasonable constraints, can we reverse global warming? And the answer is yes. But we didn't know that going into it. We didn't know that at all. We had no idea. We just went into it because we wanted to know. That goes back to what I was saying about curiosity. So the interesting thing about organization is that you can organize yourself. You're an NGO, for example, to say, listen, we know, we understand. Here's your call to action. This is what you should do. Read this. Here's the PowerPoint. Uh, you know, you can give this PowerPoint to other people and teach them, you know, so it's okay. That's one method of doing it. That's a common way of approaching the problem. It's a great way. It's fine. It's wonderful. That's not our way. Our way is to create the conditions for self-organization. And that's what life does. Life creates the conditions for self-organization. It doesn't have a boss. It doesn't have a charismatic leader. It doesn't have somebody who knows and the rest of it doesn't know. Life creates the conditions. And that's what basically an atmosphere and a climate are. It's a complex, adaptive, self-organizing system. So what we tried to do is create an NGO where it's not all roads lead to us, but everything leads away from us towards institutions, people, cities, individuals, communities, NGOs, churches, whatever way people organize themselves leads to them to empower them to work towards solutions and possibility. And so that's our role, you know, which is to give, you know, to generate, to offer to work together, to develop curriculum with teachers, but not to tell teachers what the curriculum ought to be, to do everything in a collaborative way. So what we are is a small we, collaboration from people from 25 countries, six continents, you know, all age groups, but mostly our researchers in their 20s and 30s, extraordinary scholars, Rhodes Scholars, Fulbright Scholars, White House Fellows. But... Um, and then coming together and reflecting back to the larger collaborative, which is 7.4 billion people, <laughs> humanity, it's another collaborative. It's a small we talking to a bigger we saying, look, at this is what we know, you know. And so we are not here to say we have a pathway to the future. We being the smaller NGO, we're saying we do have a pathway. There is a collective innate wisdom in humanity at work that is hidden and occluded by the media, by the way we, the, the, by the way it's, it's reported or not reported as the case may be, and by the way that it disconnects us from our um, brilliance, our creativity, our innovativeness, our dedication, and our commitment to um, healing um, our home. 
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, so Paul, I read Drawdown with a lot of curiosity, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the top 80 solutions that you modeled and mapped, and then there's a section where you talk about coming attractions, 20 solutions that are in the works. And, you know, you have this quote at one point, this is the biggest crisis that we've ever had as a collective, yet most people can't name the top solutions to reverse global warming. So I was one of those people before I read Drawdown. I don't think I could have named what was in your top 10 list. And we can go over some of the top 10 solutions that you found. But here's the big question that I, that I want to ask you. After I read the book, I thought, okay, well, one of the solutions has to do with having a plant-rich diet. I can do that. That's number four on your list. Mm -hmm. Then I looked at some of the other solutions and I thought, huh, rooftop solar, number 10. Maybe I can do that. Okay. But a lot of the solutions felt outside of me. I don't know what to do about, you know, wind turbines. I'm not associated with that. I don't, I, refrigeration, shoot, I live in a really hot place in the summer. I'm going to, you know, keep the air conditioner on. I am going to keep the air conditioner on most of the time, probably. Here it sounds true. We keep the air conditioner on. That's how people, you know, the environment they want to work in. So what I'm getting at is there's a feeling of, I read the book, now I know the solutions. Is that enough? Is the world really going to change? What's going to change? How much am I going to change? Well, the last question you have to answer. The... <laughs> um, the um, the solutions when I when I said nobody knew that nobody in the world knew the top ten, it, which and that's an anthropological question. How come after all this time, forty fifty years of global warming being in the public sphere, that nobody had just you know done the math? That's what we did. You know, we did the math. That's what we did. I mean, and um, and then said that's that's the math, as opposed to saying we think this ought to be or should be the top ten solutions. No, and so you can go to when we were doing this during COP twenty one in Paris, and you know, I mean, you can. There was thirty thousand people there, and nobody could name the top five or ten solutions, not in order, in any order. Now, now, Paul, when you said you did the math, tell our listeners what you mean by that. Well. We um, on the impact side, there, a solution can only do one of two things. It can either avoid emissions, in other words, reduce or stop emissions, that is to say, greenhouse gases from going up into the atmosphere, or it can sequester carbon. It can bring carbon back home through land use, whether <clears throat> it's farming or forests or wetlands, etc. So there's only two things you can really do: you know, stop putting it up there and bring it back home. All right. So all the data in terms of impact comes from peer-reviewed science and not just one paper, but from virtually every paper we could find on that solution. And we chose the median or the low median number where there was a spread. 
in the impact. Um, and um, so that's how the solutions were ranked. And so the ranking reflects, again, back where the solution is in terms of <clears throat> it being actuated and how much impact it has and how much it's going to grow and scale. Like some solutions, like, say, LEDs, you know, peak out in 2030, three, four, sometime in there because the whole world uses LEDs. Or, you know, I mean, there's no more incandescent bulbs. So it depends on each one, you know, uh, how they scale. Um, but that's what we mean by impact. In terms of what a person can do, we um, are just about finishing something for the website, which is educate, activate. Educate means I want to know more. Okay, thanks very much. I want to know more about reduced food waste. I want to know more about silver pasture or you know, um, tropical staple trees or afforestation or geothermal. Want, and, and this will have articles, have books, it'll have documentaries, it'll have YouTube videos, it'll have resources, you know, that will explain more of the science, more of the, um, of the practices. Then it has Activate, which is like, hey, you know, I'm in Boulder, and I want to do something more about the second solution, wind turbines, for example, and I'll tell you what you can do. And in, obviously, you can't put up a wind turbine. You're not an engineer. You don't have lots of money. You probably don't have any land. And um, so, but that doesn't mean there's not a lot you can't do with respect as an individual to um, engendering, to supporting, to encouraging, to accelerating, to demanding, to buying, to purchasing, et cetera, that solution. And so we will give people you know, those tools, you know, those, you know, uh, uh, what you call it, I mean, uh, resources in which they can activate all these solutions with a couple exceptions. Um, um, so that's number one. Number two, number three, I mean, what I was going to say is that what happened is groups are getting together all over the world, and some of them are calling themselves Drawdown organizations, Drawdown Nova Scotia, Drawdown Toronto, Drawdown New Zealand, Drawdown Switzerland, Drawdown etc. And what they're doing is getting together and figuring out themselves. What, is, what can we do here in this place at this time? A lot of the solutions don't apply to a certain town or country or place. You know, they don't apply. And so they choose those that do apply. And then they start to create a coalition in that province or that city or that place. Um, in that school, in that university, uh, in wherever, in that company. And they start to work on those solutions in which they can have impact. And so that's how Drawdown is manifesting in the world. Um, but it's not like people are powerless. And to me, what's made people feel powerless is having people stand up and say, you know, wind and solar and, and electric cars and, you know, just constantly urge us to go to clean energy and including electric cars and the implication has been that if we do that it's sufficient unto the day and that if we do so you know we get a hall pass to the 22nd century and that's just scientifically nonsense those are really crucial solutions no question about it but it's a system that caused global warming and it's a system only that can address it and heal it and so what happened 
when we model these solutions is that you start to see it's a system. The solutions are quite surprising. That is the top 10. I think they're all surprising in some ways, but the ranking is very surprising. Um, and it wasn't what anybody would have predicted, including us, by the way. <laughs> we would have got it all wrong as well if we had been asked to write the top five or 10. And we even while we were into it, we had faves and biases and assumptions, you know, about what was had the most impact, and and I would have been wrong. I think everybody at 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 the office would have been wrong. Quite wrong. Now I want to pull out something you just said because I'm not sure I understand it. That it was a system that caused global it, it warming. Is it is a system, it, and it's a system it that's needed to solve it. What do you mean by that? Help me understand the system. Well, let's say you let's say you have a car. Okay, you say, well, that's causing it. You know, it's burning fossil fuels, right? And the CO two is coming out of the gas tailpipe, right? Okay, so. Why do you have a car? Okay. <laughs> What's the car do? Right? I mean, where does it go? Why? When? How often? How long does it sit? You know, and with a red engine running, but not going anywhere, also, aka a traffic jam. I mean, that's a city, that's a design, that's a job, that's a place, right? And then, so you, you, there's no such thing as a car. There's a system. You know, there's a transport system, both public and private. Um, there are pathways that are necessary in terms of mobility that are required for people to get access to their work or to their family or to resources, resources being food, you know, health, et cetera, school. Um, and so then you look at those things. What are we talking about? What job? Doing what? To whom, how, with what, you know, and in what building? How was this building designed? And how is it being lit up and operated and heated and cooled? That goes to refrigerant management. You know, that goes to electrical generation. Uh, that goes to HVAC systems themselves and so forth, you know. What food, where, bought, you know, purchased, you know, who made it? How is it made? How did it get there? From which farm? So, you know, you're in the car. Everything we do is connected to everything else. And so when we model this, it would seem easy, you know, back of the napkin to model some of these things. It is not back of the napkin. You have to model the whole system, and then otherwise your numbers are punk. So if you say, well, I just think electric cars are going to be half of the fleet by 2035 or 40, whatever, you say, oh, really? And, and, and how, how are they going to be powered? I mean, where is that electricity going to come from? You know, so then you have to look at the grid. Well, when I mean, it just it, one thing always leads to another, and um, that is why I think, from our point of view, everybody's point of view, and I think that's why we had one assumption about, you know, what the top solutions were because sixty plus percent of all the CO two that's up there came from combustion of coal, gas, and oil. So it's logical to think, well, then we go to clean renewable energy and we're good to go, you know. But this is not true because it's combustion, yeah, but combustion where? How about the tractor and the farm? How about the ships that are, you know, this fantastic, strange, extraordinary international network of things being traded all around the world and so forth, you know. I mean, so you have to look at it the whole. And so that's why, I mean, it's a system that's causing it you know, creating it. So you have to look at the whole system, you know, and that's also means that there's no such thing as a small solution. 
we just tend to, especially Americans, say, oh, what are the big ones? We'll concentrate on the big ones. Well, it's no, all of them. And to your point very early in this question where you said, yeah, well, you know, there's not much I can do about this or this or that. Don't worry. There's people who can and are. And that's what's brilliant about us as people, which is that when I said all these things are scaling, you know, you don't have to do all of them. Do the ones that make sense to you. Do the ones that light you up. Do the ones where you have leverage and impact. Do the ones, you know, that um, uh, are, are, are possible, you know. And if you can't do something, just know, and I believe me, it's true, that there's a whole bunch of people, institutions, companies, NGOs, uh, others that are on it. They're on it. Whether you know about it or knew about it, whether there's anything you can do about it, it's extraordinary what the world is doing. So the system that is going to help us with drawdown, how can you describe that? Meaning I get in the book these hundred different solutions. They're listed individually. Help me connect to a visual, if you will, if you're visualizing something as we're talking with that visual mind of yours, to what that new system is that's a world in balance with its climate. It's not a new system. It's the existing system transformed. No, it's, it is this system. But it's this system that changes and has changed. That's what we're talking about, you know, is transformation, morphology. I mean, you're talking about, you know, taking the details of the system, the specifics of it, and changing it from where it is now to where it can go that is kinder, that is actually less expensive, uh, end of the day, that um, heals the future instead of steals it. I mean, basically, we have a system that's stealing the future and selling it in the present and calling it GDP. And and so if you look at the drawdown solutions, this is a system, the same system in terms of functionality, you know, mobility and habitat and food uh, and et cetera. And it's the same system in sectors and specificity, but now it heals the future instead of steals it. And that's a choice. And that's what global warming basically is offering us is that choice that capacity to both see and actuate um, that change and that difference. So it's not like there's a system over here that you can imagine. You know, it's this system transformed. Now, having said that, there is a book coming out from Drawdown that's called Regeneration. And that gives you both imagery. I love imagery. I I grew up as a photographer. But I mean... Uh, but it, both in words and in specifics about what a regenerative world looks like, you know, because it's about process, not about a specific solution. It's about how you organize these solutions in such a way that we regenerate, and not just land and soil and forests, but regenerate our habitats, our cities, because 80% of the people who uh, will be around in 2050 will be living in urban environments. So. Um, and the subtitle of that book is how to create one billion jobs, one billion jobs, you know. Uh, and so we have at hand, you know, basically the tools, the um, uh, techniques, the practices, the technologies to do this. 
And you mentioned the 20 coming attractions, you know, that's true, but th we have in our database another couple hundred that are coming. These are solutions that are, you know, over the horizon, on the horizon, or just past it coming towards us. And so the tools at hand are not just the tools we have already at hand, but humanity is actually extraordinarily innovative. And again, that's another thing that's sort of, I don't know, it's just we don't see it, we don't hear it, you know. I mean, our news cycle is all about lighting up our amygdala and fear and flight, you know, and as opposed to a joy and celebration because it sells better and uh, to advertisers. But the fact is that we, we need media like Drawdown and others, you know, that actually go to where we uh, want to be as a, as a human race as opposed to where we don't want to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this system is transformed with all of these interlinking pieces. It's Tra not transformed. Transforming. Transforming. Yeah. Transforming. We are yeah. transforming, hopefully. Yeah, there's yeah. no that makes sense. There, there's a, yeah. good. I, you're very sensitive to language, Paul. It's one of the things I've noticed about you. I really appreciate that. It's uh, something you. very resonant for me as well. I really appreciate it. Okay, what are the values? Where are we standing as humans and in our hearts so that we are part of this transforming? Okay, what a great question. Because it's a great question because I think there's this idea that somehow we have to be, um, the world has to become altruistic, you know, in order for this transformation to occur. And if it doesn't, then we're screwed. And I would contest that. Um, <clears throat> that's not true. Um, I think altruism is in pretty much everybody's heart and in, at some point and sometimes in, in their life. So I don't, I don't think it's absent. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the way we have conceived and conceptualized the problem is that is, is, is a future existential threat. In other words, if we don't do this or if we keep doing this, you know, this is going to happen in the future and won't we be sorry? I mean, that's essentially the narrative. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay. Yeah, okay. And the problem with that narrative is not that I would disagree with the predictive capacity or the pattern recognition of science in terms of global circulation models, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about global circulation models of weather, all right? And then what happens on the ground when that changes, you know? Okay, so I'm not disagreeing with that, but I do disagree with the idea that somehow if we keep... Um, talking about future existential threat that everybody's going to say wake up one day and say whoa yeah right let's let's go because human beings don't respond to future existential threat we're not wired that way our brain doesn't work that way i mean our ancestors yours specific ancestors and everybody who's listening to this their ancestors responded really well to current existential threat food, health, security, you know, I mean, habitat, etc. really well. That's why you're here. And so the people who just thought nothing else but about future existential threat aren't in the gene pool anymore. They're gone. And so we know this. This is, you know, neuroscientists, neuroscience 101, okay? So what we're doing in terms of 
you know, basically thinking about the solutions is upside down and backwards. The way you reverse global warming is not to appeal, appeal to people's scientific literacy or altruism or willingness to sacrifice. What you want to do is appeal to people's needs. You want to address current human needs. And never in the world has there been so much great work to do. Never than now. And never has there been greater human need than now. And never have more people been marginalized and told basically, we don't need you. There isn't work for you. Or the work that is there for you is sort of low paying and diminishing and meaningless. And basically what Drawdown points to, and not that we know, I'm just saying we did the math, we did the analysis, and then we stepped back just like you when you read it and said, what is this telling us? And what it tells us is the way we address the future is to address current human needs. And what do people need? They need the same things all over the world. They need food, good food. They need security. They need to feel safe. They need homes that are healthy. They need education. They need health care. They need mobility. You know, they need a reason. And what we're saying is that the reason regeneration is called you know, subtitles, how to create one billion jobs, not jobs, not shovel-ready jobs, you know, let's just make work, okay, build a road, foolish. We're talking about is providing <clears throat> work that gives people a sense of meaning, purpose, self-respect, that actually heals the future, that does something for themselves, their family, their community, and so forth. That's what the, the global warming points to, and that's what the solutions point to. That's a regenerative world. And what we know from economic theory, which is about economic complexity theory developed at MIT and Harvard, is that when you make an economy more complex, uh, you have better outcomes for everybody on all the things, on socially and education, health, economic, economic equality, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so when we look at these solutions, rather than see them as like, warming solutions or climate solutions, they're human solutions. You could take climate right out of the picture from drawdown completely. Take the impact statement out completely. Forget about all that. Look at it and say, this is these are solutions that actually regenerate the planet and restore human well-being because they have so many beneficial uh, outcomes. You don't educate a girl because it's going to reverse global warming. You get a, uh, you 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 support education of a young girl for a hundred reasons or more. And by the way, you know that woman has uh, is that girl who becomes a woman is empowered in such a way that she chooses a very different family path than one who is taken out of school, who is married early or is given a job and ends up having two and a half times more children than the same girl who's actually supported and empowered to be educated. So the, 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 so the solutions we're talking about are ones that actually literally can create more meaningful living wage, purposeful jobs to give people respect than there are people on the planet. And when that happens, people have a sense of self-worth. When people don't have a sense of self-worth, they act it out. They act it out in terms of 
petty crime or more serious crime in terms of gangs, in terms of joining uh, <clears throat> groups that are, we would call terrorists. They acted out in terms of electing demagogues and fake populists uh, who pander to their fears and make them uh, believe that it's somebody else's fault than them for their life. And that may be, but it's not immigrants and Islam and women, other things, which is what's happening all over the world. And so that's why drawdown is so important. You can take climate out of the picture and it points to a world that is absolutely a world we want to move towards because we are moving towards it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to ask you two final questions. I'm going to just get them out here quickly. I saw a slide in one of your presentations when I was doing some research for this conversation, and it showed all of us human beings packed into as small a space as possible, shoulder to shoulder, and that we don't actually take up that much space when we're all grouped together like that compared mm -hmm. to the size of the earth. But mm -hmm. what I didn't understand is what you're trying to say with this image. Uh, there's two images there. There's one of people, and there's one. There's one of of uh, all the carbon we emit every year. And um, on that slide, at least the one I remember making, and the the point was to uh, was twofold. One is to show you that the um, when I showed that first slide, it was actually in uh, uh, Toronto to a bunch of. Uh, um, executives from big corporations and when i showed it i said okay here's a problem graphically you know as an image i said does this look solvable to you <laughs> like in other words there's this little tiny ball you can't even see it from space that's all the greenhouse gases we emit every year i'm not in the in a way diminishing their impact but i'm just saying is do you think we can solve this and they all go look well yeah you know, and I said, now this is us, you know, that little, that little tiny ball there, smaller, said, can we live here without having the impact, the destructive impact we're having now? What do you think? You know, I mean, look at there's, in terms of biomass, there's what, 10 times as many beetles, and apparently, you know, we do really well with all those beetles, you know. But not with this creature called Homo sapiens, you know. So, do you think we can live here as well as beetles do? You know, in terms of impact, are we that smart or are we that stupid? So that was the purpose of it, which is to give people a sense of dimensionality, and um, because I think people project on the Earth that somehow it's uh, overpopulated. It probably is, but really, it's 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 over demanded, it's over impacted, it's overtaken, literally, um, by human technology, human desire, human greed, human systems. You know, and it's not we can do it. We can do it differently. We really can. Which brings me to my final question, which is just a quote that I really loved from your work: "Climate change isn't happening to us; it's happening for us." How do you understand it happening for us? Well, to us, if you think it's happening to you, which most of us do, okay, and then that, who are you? Well, the object. That's what to means. There's an object. You're the object. You're the victim 
uh, you didn't have any part in it. You know, you didn't create it. You didn't do it. You got the short end of the stick. Uh, it's not fair. Uh, it's not what you came here to do. Uh, you want to you know, buy a house in the country and have children and blah, 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 whatever. And, and so you then live from that place. You live from a place of being the object in, instead of the subject. Not the creator, um, but the the created, if you will, or and 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 that is just a very disempowering place to be. And I think if we understand that everything that happens in our life, it's not just climate change. Everything is happening for us. It's an opportunity, you know. Basically, in this case, as mentioned before. It's an opportunity to see ourselves and in a very different way, which is number one, if it's happening for us, then we take responsibility for the whole darn thing and stop blaming people. It doesn't mean we don't speak truth to power, but stop blaming. And therefore, and then we're free. We put that one aside, you know, of having to walk around like a victim, you know, begrudgingly blaming everyone else and thinking that it's unfair. That takes a lot of energy. Second, then we can begin to imagine what our role is here. Why are we here? You know, and that engenders creativity and uh, innovation and possibility and so forth. So now we're coming from a very different place, which is, what can I do about this? You know, what is my role? What are my strengths? You know, your strength is you're doing. It sounds true. Is that's just strength that you have, and it's manifest and it's beautiful and what it's done. So you figure that out. For a lot of people, if you go around the world thinking that basically you go around your life, I mean, thinking that somehow, you know, you got the short end of the stick, you know, it doesn't leave you very many good choices. And when you change it, the preposition from two to four, um, then it's a gift. You inspire me, Paul, about regenerativity, the regenerative world, our regenerativity as a species and as life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation. What a gift for our listeners. Thank you. You're so welcome. Can I say one more thing? I mean, you can. Yeah. Which, which is that regeneration, you, you can scrape, burn, poison, clear cut, you know, the, the natural world in any shape, manner, or form. Okay. And it's like tragedy. But the default mode of life, the moment you stop harming it, is regeneration. It's default mode. That's what nature does. And we are nature. It's our default mode. So it's not like out there somewhere. It's life itself is what life does. Life creates the conditions conducive to life. And yes, we're so smart. You know, we can kill it, burn it, poison it, you know, and think that we're doing good. That is idiocy. But when we stop doing that and so forth, like I say, we moved every generation. So it, it is a natural outcome of uh, an integrated mind. You've been listening to Paul Hawken. He's the editor of the book Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Someone whose regenerative spirit gives us the gift of regeneration. Tammy, thank you. My gosh, what you're doing is regenerative in every single possible way. So thank you for what you're doing. I also want to let you know that we are broadcasting this 
particular episode in honor of an upcoming free 10-day online event series that Sounds True is producing. It's called Waking Up in the World. It's a free series with 30 different presenters. People like Joanna Macy, Tara Brock, Van Jones, Parker Palmer, Valerie Carr, Eve Ensler, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Jack Cornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and others. And it's on the intersection between spiritual awakening and being a change agent in the world. The series starts on September 24th. It runs through October 3rd. Again, three sessions a day for 10 days, 30 sessions airing for free at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. each day. And you can visit us at SoundsTrue.com to learn more about waking up in the world. It begins on September 24th. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>